Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If an issue requires assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Follicular Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations and many other lymphoma organizations as well. And I also like to call it the Lymphoma Research Foundation as being a very active collaborating organization with us over many, many years. Um, today's um, program has really many participants, and we have over 435 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, so from all different parts of the United States and also from different regions, like from urban or rural or um, suburban areas as well. And we also have international participants on the call today from Canada, England, India, Ireland, and Venezuela. So it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now today's program is supported by a grant from Genentech and Gilead, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now we have um, wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin, and Dr. Martin is Associate Professor of Medicine, Chief of Lymphoma Program, while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Martin is going to address an overview of follicular lymphoma, treatment options for newly diagnosed, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thanks, Dr. Messner. I think, um, well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on this call. I think it's a great forum um, for education for uh, a broad group of people, and uh, I'm happy to be part of it. So I'll start by giving a little bit of overview on follicular lymphoma. I'll talk a little bit about some of the um, options regarding frontline therapy and some things to discuss uh, when people are talking to their doctors about follicular lymphoma and frontline therapy for follicular lymphoma. So first of all, follicular lymphoma is a, um, a, it's a kind of white blood cell cancer or a lymphoma that starts in the lymphatic system, primarily lymph nodes, spleen, and uh, bone marrow. And follicular lymphoma, like many other kinds of lymphoma, is not something that happens for any particular reason. It really is a consequence of uh, having a normal human immune system. It's not something that's strongly linked to family history. It's not something that's strongly linked to environmental exposures or behaviors. Really, our immune system is uh, constantly changing over time, and we're all fortunate to have uh, a robust, uh, constantly changing immune system. But unfortunately, uh, one of the consequences of that is that our immune system periodically will develop um, genetic mutations, and sometimes those genetic mutations can lead individual cells towards a path towards lymphoma. And, and in fact, these mutations are quite common, and um, there are many of us that believe that uh, every uh, human in their lifetime is developing one form of lymphoma or another. Follicular lymphoma is the most common, what we call indolent, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And that term indolent essentially means that it's a, a lymphoma that tends to grow slowly. In other words, these white blood cells um, 
duplicate themselves or double at a fairly slow rate. They uh, tend to respond quite well to treatment. Um, but none of our existing sort of current standard therapies are able to eradicate every single last follicular lymphoma cell. And that has to do, that has an implication with uh, respect to treatment of follicular lymphoma. So when, we, when we're thinking about uh, first-line treatment of follicular lymphoma, one of the keys really is to uh, consider what the goal of therapy is. I mean, to some degree that's true when we're talking about treatment of everything, whether it's blood pressure, an infection, or, or a cancer, but in follicular lymphoma in particular, our goals are uh, to prolong life when we can. That's sort of an interesting concept when we're talking about follicular lymphoma in particular because it turns out that most people, probably 80% or more of people with follicular lymphoma, have a lifespan or longevity that is uh, equivalent to a population of people who don't have lymphoma at all. Now, obviously, that life is impacted by the presence of lymphoma, and it's different because of lymphoma, but it's not necessarily any shorter than it might have been in somebody without lymphoma. And therefore, uh, it really turns a lot of our attention as uh, clinicians to trying to minimize the impact of lymphoma on somebody's life, but also minimizing the impact of treatments for lymphoma on somebody's life. So I sort of view my job as, you know, learning as much as I can about a specific lymphoma, learning as much as I can about a specific person with lymphoma, and trying to come up with the treatment options that I think best uh, accommodate that goal, which is to minimize the impact of lymphoma and treatment for lymphoma on somebody's life. One of the best ways to do that very often is in fact, not to immediately treat follicular lymphoma, but rather to observe it. Some people call this observation. Some people call this deferred therapy. Uh, watch and wait is another term for it. There are a variety of terms, but effectively, the purpose of that is essentially because many of our treatments, although they're effective, will often have some side effects. And because follicular lymphoma is very frequently diagnosed at a point in time when it's asymptomatic, it's very hard to improve on somebody's quality of life when, in fact, the lymphoma may not be causing any problems and may not cause problems for several months, years, or even decades. And uh, so because of that, often we will uh, observe people for a period of time. At some point in time, most people will undergo some sort of therapy for follicular lymphoma. And the choice of therapy uh, can vary significantly from person to person and, and scenario to scenario. One of the uh, treatment options that is fairly common is a biological drug uh, called rituximab. Rituximab is essentially an antibody or a protein. We all make antibodies. In fact, we have antibodies are proteins that are made by our own immune system to fight against foreign invaders like bacteria or viruses or parasites. Rituximab is essentially a, a protein that's made in a laboratory to fight against lymphoma cells. And rituximab by itself is attractive because it works with our own immune system to fight against lymphoma cells. So it's uh, 
it's effective in that it can be more targeted than some other treatments. Also, it is uh, fairly well tolerated. And we use it primarily in people who have limited amounts of follicular lymphoma. So in other words, if the lymphoma is um, present in a limited number of locations or, or if the lymph nodes themselves are not particularly large, we will uh, sometimes use reduction that by itself once a week for four weeks, sometimes a little bit longer than that. And many people will benefit from that, but in, in fact, there is some research from Switzerland that says that up to 40% of people that have a good response to that can have a response that may last as long as a decade. And, and we, we're not really great at predicting who those people might be, but indeed there's a significant subset of people with follicular lymphoma who can have extremely durable uh, responses and remissions with pretty minimally intensive therapy. Some people who have either more follicular lymphoma or who have more lymphoma that um, is in a certain location that might be causing either symptoms or organ dysfunction might need a response that's either a little bit more uh, robust or longer lasting than rituximab might be. And under those circumstances, we might combine rituximab with chemotherapy. And there are a multitude of different kinds of chemotherapy drugs that can be combined with um, biologic therapies like rituximab. But the most common ones are bendamustine, which is administered uh, intravenously two days in a row, once every 28 days. Another common one is CHOP chemotherapy, a combination of uh, four medications, three intravenous and one oral. And in general, these treatments are given uh, intermittently over a period of four to six months. And these treatments are given with the intention of inducing a deep response that is hopefully durable. And, and in fact, in um, data that was recently updated at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, a combination of rituximab plus chemotherapy followed by rituximab maintenance uh, was able to induce remissions in a significant number of people that were often lasting over a decade. Now, the choice of chemotherapy can vary significantly from scenario to scenario, so I don't want to dwell a lot on that right now, but it's definitely something that uh, every physician is considering uh, uh, and discussing with patients before uh, picking that particular therapy. There have been a few uh, changes over the past um, year that are worth discussing. One of them is that uh, recently the FDA approved in the United States obinutuzumab, which is um, what we call a second-generation biological therapy. It's very similar to rituximab. And in a large comparative trial comparing rituximab plus chemotherapy to obinutuzumab plus chemotherapy, it looks as though the obinutuzumab plus chemotherapy arm can induce um, remissions that may be a little bit more durable than rituximab plus chemotherapy. On the other hand, they... Um, tend to come with um, some additional side effects, including more frequent infusion reactions, uh, changes in blood counts, uh, and infections. And ultimately, since most people with follicular lymphoma have a normal lifespan, the choice of that um, drug protection ever and venetuzumab didn't change uh, longevity. And so there's a, sometimes a reason to choose one or the other. Um, 
Uh, and lastly, another interesting change, a clinical trial that uh, was started several years ago and we've been waiting for the results of is a combination of rituximab plus lenalidomide, and that was a clinical, that regimen. Lenalidomide is an oral therapy that is approved for multiple myeloma and mantle cell lymphoma and um, has clearly demonstrated um, activity in follicular lymphoma in clinical trials that were done at Sandy Anderson, where Dr. Masterpole uh, will be speaking later uh, works, and at Weill Cornell, where uh, I work. Uh, that combination of rituximab plus lenalidomide is very effective in follicular lymphoma in a large clinical trial comparing rituximab plus lenalidomide to rituximab plus chemotherapy with the aim of getting rid of chemotherapy, essentially, we don't have the results for that trial completely, but a press release from Celgene suggested that that trial um, did not meet its primary objective, which was to prove that the non-chemotherapy approach was better than chemotherapy, and we'll have to wait a little bit longer to learn um, whether they're very similar, whether one arm was worse than the other or not. But at this point, it's probably... Uh, not true that rituximab plus lenalidomide will be better than chemotherapy, but it might be might be very similar, and so that will uh, introduce an, potentially an, a new treatment option, but we'll have to wait to see where that goes. Now, a couple of important caveats to all of that are um, those all uh, refer to systemic therapies. It, there's one scenario, which is when follicular lymphoma is very localized, that uh, we do treat it occasionally with the intention of eradicating follicular lymphoma or curing it. That comes about through treatment with radiation therapy. That tends to be a rare scenario because as a blood cancer, we think of follicular lymphoma typically as being in, in more places than one, even when we only see it in one place on the scan. But there are some scenarios where it's very localized where we can treat it with curative intent. Another scenario that might make us think differently is when uh, follicular lymphoma is more than just follicular lymphoma. It turns out that uh, some people with follicular lymphoma undergo what we call transformation. In other words, the lymphoma itself uh, undergoes some additional biological changes that make it a little bit more aggressive. And under those circumstances, we might treat follicular lymphoma a little bit more intensively than we would otherwise. But in general, most people with follicular lymphoma will receive frontline treatment along the lines of uh, what I've just described. So when somebody is talking to their doctor about follicular lymphoma, I think there are a few uh, things that are important. One of them, um, as I mentioned, is stage. You know, is this really localized and could it theoretically be treated with curative intent? Again, that's not very common, but it might be the case. One is a tumor burden. In other words, if there, is there a lot of lymphoma or is there just a little bit of lymphoma? And if there's just a little bit of lymphoma, is it worthwhile considering less intensive therapies? And then, as I mentioned, is there any evidence for transformation? Sometimes it's not clear whether there's evidence of transformation and biopsies have to repeat, be repeated or PET scans can be helpful in, in terms of guiding those biopsies. The other uh, keys when talking about treatment are, you know, to ask the physician, what can you tell me about the proposed treatment options? What are the goals of this treatment? Is it to eradicate the lymphoma? Not very common, but potentially a scenario. Is it to uh, induce a short-term remission? Is it to induce a long-term remission? And then 
you know, also why are we starting treatment right now? And I think that that can be an uncomfortable uh, conversation for some uh, people. Essentially, you can feel as though you're challenging your physician, you know, why are we doing this? Um, and historically, I think medicine was set up in terms of that sort of imbalance uh, between physicians and patients. But increasingly, we're moving towards a more collaborative sort of a relationship, and uh, those kinds of questions become really important. People with follicular lymphoma are going to be with their physicians for like, 20 years on average now, it seems. And so it's important to be able to have a very open and collaborative relationship. And so there shouldn't be really any secrets. Uh, and so that's, I think those are the key questions to keep in mind when uh, thinking about initiation of treatment for follicular lymphoma. So that's uh, my part. And uh, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. And thank you also for making the complicated, very understandable for everybody and really and that's always appreciated by everyone and also for highlighting um, the importance of the communication piece and, um, and really, really really describing in much more deep detail than we've ever done before um, really um, a colloquial lymphoma. So thank you very much. Very well done. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Loretta Nassipal. Dr. Nassipal is Director of Lymphoma Outcomes Database, Assistant Professor, Department of Lymphoma and Myeloma, Division of Cancer Medicine, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Nassipal is going to address treatment outcome options for relapsed refractory disease, the role of clinical trials, or how research contributes to treatment options, and managing side effects. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Nastapool. Thank you so much, and I'll echo um, Dr. Martin's comments. I really appreciate being invited to participate in this review. It's such an important um, topic, and it is changing so rapidly based off of the questions that I receive in clinic when I'm chatting with patients. There is a lot of heterogeneity out there in terms of outcomes and treatment options, which make it challenging, I think, for patients to understand why they may go to two or three different physicians and get two or three different recommendations. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to tackle the topic of relapsed follicular lymphoma. And I will start by saying it is such a heterogeneous population that it is truly not a one-size-fits-all approach. So to try to address it, how I approach this in the clinic is I really take into consideration what patient's first-line treatment was. You've had a nice overview of the complexities we face in terms of choosing treatment options and guiding that discussion, but also what the outcome of that front-line approach was. So we have a couple of things that help us in terms of determining treatment decisions. One of the first things we look at is the PET at the end of therapy. So there is data that has been collected across three different prospective studies and analyzed as a large group. And we know that if patients achieve a PET at the end of their frontline therapy, their PFS and overall survival is much better than for patients who fail to achieve a complete response as determined by PET scan. So that's the first thing I look at is what was the response to their first-line therapy and what was the outcome of that response. As Dr. Martin identified there are extended dosing strategies that occur following frontline, such as maintenance. I take that into consideration in terms of whether they had maintenance, what their duration of treatment was, what the outcome was, and particularly the duration of response. The other data that helps inform that question is 
um, an observational cohort called the National Lymphocare Study, which collected data on about 3,000 follicle patients enrolled between 2004 and 2007, which is important to know because treatment options have changed in the past 10 years. But Carla Casulo and a number of others looked at this, and they identified patients that progressed within 24 months of frontline rituximab plus chemotherapy, primarily CHOP. Their median survival was approximately five years versus those that progressed beyond 24 months. Their survival was similar to an age-matched cohort, meaning they were just as likely to be alive and well as their high school classmates despite having had lymphoma. So this highlights the unmet need currently, meaning the patients that progress within 24 months of their frontline chemo plus rituximab, they're faced with very poor outcomes. And what we don't currently understand is how we should manage them differently as opposed to all other patients that may progress beyond that 24-month cutoff period. So I generally will advise that patients undergo a biopsy at that first relapse to ensure that we're still continuing with follicular lymphoma and their disease has not transformed into a more aggressive histology, such as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or just that we know we're actually dealing with lymphoma and not, say, an infection or inflammation that can sometimes be picked up on scans as well. But if I've proven relapsed follicular lymphoma, there are times when observation is still appropriate, as mentioned before. That's usually for someone who has very small volume lymph nodes on imaging, and they're in the absence of symptoms, and there's no threat to any other organs such as kidney or liver function. For those, though, who are in need of therapy, generally we are following along the lines of something different from what they had in their first line, but still oftentimes backed with chemotherapy and a CD20 antibody. Obinutuzumab, which you've heard about as a newer version of rituximab, has made its appearance in the relapse setting, particularly for patients who progress or fail to respond to rituximab-based approaches within six months. So there was a study where patients received obinutuzumab in combination with chemotherapy, and this resulted in an improvement in their outcomes, suggesting that if you fail frontline chemotherapy plus rituximab in a short period of time, obinutuzumab may overcome that poor risk finding. And for patients who've had at least two lines of treatment, so this is first line and second line, there are a number of options that currently exist that are targeted therapy, meaning they usually block a specific enzyme in pathways that lymphoma cells may overutilize to their survival advantage. And this may be an attractive approach for someone who's had two prior lines of chemotherapy and their disease has come back. And the two agents that are currently approved are Idelalicid and Copanlicid. Idelalicid is an oral TI3 kinase inhibitor. Again, it blocks an enzyme in the B-cell receptor signaling pathway. And Copanlicid is an IV formulation. It has a little bit broader target that similarly targets an enzyme in that pathway. It's given IV on an intermittent schedule. Both of these are continued until the lymphoma fails to respond or is intolerable. Chemotherapy has very sort of traditionally known side effects, meaning drop in blood count, risk for nausea, vomiting, occasionally hair loss, numbness, and tingling. These newer agents have a, little, a different safety profile, meaning they target specific enzymes and pathways. They may have an impact on other cells where the enzyme might look similar and is also blocked. We traditionally see with the PI3 kinase inhibitors, elevation of liver enzymes, diarrhea that can progress to the severity of a colitis, 
our pneumonitis, which is inflammation of the lungs that can cause cough or shortness of breath, rash, and even infections. So though they're not chemotherapy and have a different safety profile, I think it's still important to be mindful of these unique toxicities that can arise at various times over the course of the treatment. And usually with early intervention, meaning holding drugs, these side effects can improve or even resolve. Outside of that, the other thing that oftentimes we talk about with patients are stem cell transplants, and there are two forms. So one is what we call an auto stem cell transplant or autologous, where we generally will administer chemotherapy, collect a patient's stem cells, and then administer high-dose therapy and then provide those stem cells back to them a rescue attempt to repopulate the bone marrow in terms of white blood cells, red cells, and platelets. Those are clearly um, an option for certain patients, particularly those where we're concerned about underlying transformed disease or maybe those early progressors, someone who relapses within 24 months of their frontline approach, but not applicable for all patients. The other type of transplant is an allogeneic stem cell transplant, where we generally will get patients into remission using various methods. But once they're in remission, identify a suitable donor. So this is using stem cells from a, either a related relative or someone who's unrelated that we think will at least provide some activity against the tumor and not too much activity against the host, something we call graft-versus-host disease. And this, too, has been studied and demonstrates very good outcomes for select patients. Most select patients are those that are generally younger with limited comorbid conditions and who have a suitable donor. It's a little bit controversial in terms of can you pick an autotransplant versus an allotransplant for a given situation, and I think there's not enough information out there to inform that question. But again, if you have a young person with limited comorbidities who has a good donor, that might be an option for someone who fails in that early relapse category. In terms of investigational agents that are gaining a lot of interest and in why I think it's important to consider clinical trials, there are a number of things that look very promising right now for relapsed follicular lymphoma. You've already heard about one approach, which is lenalidomide in combination with rituximab, but the rationale behind that is that you can stimulate the patient's own immune system and then target it at the tumor cells. And there is a trial that is completed enrollment, and we're waiting the results where it is compared against rituximab alone. And if that's a positive study, that will provide another option for relapsed follicular lymphoma. There are other targeted agents, such as other PI3 kinase inhibitors that are under investigation that look promising in terms of a safety profile, maybe more promising than the agents that are currently approved. And there are new agents aimed at the biology of the tumor. One example is follicular um, lymphoma has a mutation called EZH2 in about 30% of cases, and there's an EZH2 inhibitor called tazometastat that looks very promising in the early studies and is now undergoing what we call a registration study, but again, if the study shows good results and is well tolerated, may lead to FDA approval of that agent. And the last new therapy that I'll touch on is CAR T-cell therapy, which is where we collect patients' own T-cells. We send them off and they're modified where they have a built-in receptor that will bind a specific target, and the target we're using in lymphoma is something called CD19, which is expressed on all lymphoma cells and few mature B cells. It's a nice target. 
there are co-stimulatory molecules built into this construct. So essentially what we're doing is we're taking patients' own T cells and we're bypassing away the normal immune system works by building in a target in a stimulatory signal. So when those T cells bind to the lymphoma cell, they get a communication or a signal to eliminate that cell. It's an infection and shouldn't be present. This leads to sort of other T cells bring, being brought over and also included into the process that can cause pretty significant flu-like symptoms. So oftentimes fever, chills, achiness, um, to the other end of the, the spectrum where we can see some neurotoxicity, which can manifest as headaches or confusion or even difficulty responding. So it, it's something that is currently restrained to a clinical trial just for full, relapsed follicular lymphoma, but it's been FDA-approved recently, two different constructs, one called the Carter and one called Kimraya, for the treatment of transformed follicular lymphoma. So these are patients where their follicular has transformed into an aggressive histology, something called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So again, a select patient population, but prior to this, they were not candidates for stem cell transplant, either autologous or allogeneic, were faced with very poor outcomes. They now have an option that, albeit short follow-up, looks to be very promising. So I just covered a lot of topics for the management of relapsed polygonfoma, but the central theme is that there are a number of options that exist we oftentimes will choose therapy based off of patients' prior treatment and the outcomes of that prior treatment. And for the high-risk patients, which we currently define, those who progress within 24 months of their frontline chemoimmunotherapy or those that have transformed, we now have a number of options that are either under exploration or recently approved that are quite promising for patients. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Knopfler. That was really outstanding. And I really also, you really made very complex concepts understandable and also just walk people through all the different options and very helpful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much. And our next, the next speaker is Ms. Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And um, Ms. Evelyn will be addressing the free psychosocial services at Cancer Care Office, programs and services, as well as the role of support groups. It's now my pleasure to Ms. Bergenlovitz, my esteemed colleague, Ms. Evelyn. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with follicular lymphoma and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional supportive services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their loved ones and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. Asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of stress. 
Westchester can offer face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically for people diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, as well as other blood cancers. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group, and our groups in general, offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a cancer care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and your loved ones. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are there to help. So please do consider contacting us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Evelyn. That was really wonderful. And it's a wonderful resource for everyone on the call. And some of you are using those resources, but if you're not, and particularly if it is a, an online support group for all of you that you can join. And I should say that there are 120 online support groups at the moment, so all different topics. And um, I know Ms. Evelyn mentioned also we have groups for caregivers for all different populations. So take a look. You may have a friend who might be benefiting from it as well. So thank you. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to bring all of us through on board and to actually explain to how to queue up for questions. Some of you have already done so because you know how to do this, but some of you don't know, so um, Ayala will, um, will equal the playing field so everybody can ask a question, and we'll, we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you just move yourself in the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Dennis M. Your line is now open. Um, I think you meant Denise M. Is that right? Oh, yes. Of course, Denise. It's question. Okay. Thank you. Um, this question is for Dr. Martin. Can you tell us uh, roughly what percentage of patients with indolent follicular lymphoma never need treatment and whether there is a number of years or a tipping point uh, after which you can say with some degree of confidence that that patient may not require treatment. Thank you. Question, thank you. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so how many people never need uh, treatment? You know, so, um, so historically, uh, we used to say that people uh, with so, okay, so first of all, the, the people that get follicular lymphoma can range significantly in age and background um, from, you know, we have people in our clinic uh, who are in their 20s, there are people who are diagnosed in their 90s, and, and that obviously has some implications. You know, somebody who's in their 20s is almost certainly going to need treatment at some point in their life. But historically, so, so on average, most people with follicular lymphoma will be diagnosed at some point in their mid-60s. Uh, 
We used to say that somebody who was diagnosed with an indolent lymphoma at age 70 would have about a 70% chance of never needing treatment. But that has not really been my clinical experience. And, and the, the interesting thing is I think that in most academic centers like uh, Cornell and, and the Anderson, we're probably more inclined to observe people than um, and not initiate therapy in, immediately uh, compared to other maybe uh, community-based centers where they might not be as comfortable with careful observation. Um, you know, the other, the other thing that goes along with that is people are living longer than ever before from other illnesses. People with heart disease are living longer than they had ever been living before. And so a 70, somebody who was 70, 70 years old in 1980 is not living as long as somebody who's 70 years old in 2018. So I don't really have a, a statistic for you. Um, I don't know if Loretta has a specific a statistic. I know from the uh, lymphal care study that Dr. Nastapol mentioned earlier, it was about 15% of people that um, were initially observed in their treatment. Again, that was a, in a population of about 2,000 people collected lymphoma treated broadly in different centers around the United States. But my, my suspicion is that most people at some point in their life will uh, require treatment for follicular lymphoma. But that said, we do have many people who have gone for a decade or more without needing treatment. I'm not really comfortable saying, though, that there's no chance that those people will ever require treatment. Dr. Nassau, did you want to add anything? That's excellent. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Did you want to add anything? I completely agree with that. I'd say at least reflecting on my own population, I have maybe less than 5% of patients that have never had treatment, a few of them beyond 10 years. But every time I see them, we're still talking about, well, these are the things we're watching for, and if they develop, we'll intervene. I think that um, Dr. Martin made the point that many people with um, other, I guess, um, illness, other health issues um, often follow, are followed by their physician regularly. Um, as, and could you comment on that? Because that's really probably important. You don't just kind of, um, it's the, there is the change really picked up on blood work or is it changed? picked up by a symptom occurring, or would it be really important to have that follow-up that you wouldn't just think, well, I don't really have to come in anymore, but we really wouldn't want to give that message to someone on the call because this follow-up is really important, as it is for other types of health problems that you mentioned as well. Yeah, great great point. There are a couple of points there. One, I think that um, cancer care and follicular lymphoma care especially is, is really becoming a team-based um, approach. Uh, people with follicular lymphoma may or may not have other um, health issues. Lymphoma doctors, I can tell you that I spend seven days a week, 24 hours a day, thinking about follicular lymphoma, but it means that I don't know as much about diabetes or hypertension as I, as I once did. And so I rely on colleagues in other areas of medicine to help um, take care of uh, those aspects of, of the lives of, of people that I um, eat on a daily basis with follicular lymphoma. Uh, in general, my approach to following follicular lymphoma is to try to individualize it as much as possible. And that usually means that uh, after diagnosis, I'll see somebody within about a month because I think it's important to be available to answer questions and, and try to reduce anxiety that inevitably comes up shortly after diagnosis. 
oftentimes after that, if, if I think that somebody really doesn't have a, a lot of lymphoma or has what we call low tumor burden follicular lymphoma, I'm happy seeing them every three months or so. And in a few people who seem to have a long period with particularly stable lymphoma, sometimes we'll space that out to every six months or so, with the caveat being that they feel really comfortable contacting us any time to let us know if there's any issue, and also that they have some other physician that they might be seeing at the same time. The way we follow people usually uh, in my clinic is uh, simply with a clinical exam and by talking to people about symptoms. Blood tests are done uh, routinely. In all honesty, they're not super helpful, but I think they're important because they sometimes do pick something up. Imaging is an interesting and um, I wouldn't say controversial, but debatable practice. I think my bias in general is to limit the amount of imaging that's done in that sort of surveillance period because very often it's not particularly helpful, but rather my bias is to choose to do imaging at a point that somebody has a symptom that I think is worth uh, following up. So rather than uh, schedule imaging, you know, for every three months or every six months, my bias is to do it more sort of as needed, but but there are some exceptions to that, and you know it's hard to draw broad generalizations uh, about how to do that specifically. But it's clear that uh, follow-up is is an important part of uh, that part of cancer care. The only thing I'll add is that we know patients with follicular lymphoma have a higher risk for second cancers than the general population. We used to think a lot of that stemmed from the treatment we were prescribing to our patients, but even in the absence of treatment, and most of the time their skin cancers are things that are not generally life-threatening. But I do tell patients, even if I'm not getting a scan, even if they're 10 years out, I see them once a year. And we make sure that they're up to date on their general health maintenance in terms of screening for other cancers. And as Peter Martin, I'm making sure that they're seeing their primary care doctor who's checking their cholesterol and making sure that their blood pressure is controlled because we're expecting our patients to live a very long time. And we have to think about competing risks for their life longevity. And so heart disease is still a big problem we face in the United States. So I'd like to ensure that we're thinking about all aspects of their general health and not just their lymphoma. Thank you. Wonderful question. And our next question, Ayala. Our next question is from Marcia R. Your line is now open. Yes, um, thank you for the call today. And I guess this might be for Dr. Martin. He had mentioned that in cases of very localized disease where there was a small amount of disease in the tumor, where radiation is used as a curative uh, intent, is it any magic number? I know it doesn't exist, but do you feel comfortable saying at any point one might, with, a, with no evidence of disease, feel that they've been cured? I've been in remission for 13 years. Thank you. So that's a great story. I think, um, you know, 13 years is a really long time. And obviously, I think for you, you know, you made a, a good decision. Um, to proceed with radiation, I think that, that that's an interesting, you know, it, it, could be, it becomes a really long conversation every time we have it uh, for a variety of reasons. One is that um, 
the curative approach offers certain benefits, but I'm not sure that it that one of those benefits necessarily is that it makes somebody live longer, interestingly. And there's uh, some data from Stanford to suggest that that might be true. It, it may be true, but it's, it's hard to know for sure. Um, that, that said, clearly there's an emotional uh, benefit and, and potentially a, a physical benefit to not having to deal with ongoing uh, symptoms of lymphoma or, or, or other treatments. Some people believe that early-stage follicular lymphoma is biologically distinct from follicular lymphoma that occurs in many places. And so that people with early-stage follicular lymphoma might still experience a relapse, but it might be a relapse that might take a lot longer to happen. In other words, it might still be that sort of thing that's present in multiple places, but it grows more slowly than sort of typical follicular lymphoma, which already grows really slowly. And so, you know, I think there's a good chance that you're going to go a very, very long period of time without dealing with follicular lymphoma, uh, dealing with follicular lymphoma, and there's a very good chance that it will never come back. But it's very hard, you know, as a scientist, I guess, or a clinical scientist to say that there's no chance, you know, because it's been 15 years or 20 years that it's never coming back because I think that we've all seen some examples where it, it does come back. And so it's still appropriate to follow up, but, it, you know, I think, you know, and that's not to paint it in a particularly negative way. Obviously, this is a great thing. 13 years is a long time, and it probably will continue for a, a very long period of time. That's an excellent point. And, do you want to comment on that just because there is that kind of emotional um, concern that people live with, um, and that's true with lymphoma, true with many cancers, that things are going well, and um, and people still kind of feel a bit of sense of concern or, or worry. And um, uh, is that comes up the group at all, and how do people, how can you comment on just how people help each other to cope with that? Right? Absolutely. I, I think um, for this type of cancer and other types of cancer, um, there, there can be a sense of uncertainty. Um, certainly, you know, from diagnosis and in this case to a long period of, of, of no active symptoms, uh, I think groups can be a wonderful space to, to share that, um, you know, and, um, and to really connect with others around how they manage their own questions and sets of uncertainties that, that do come up. Um, I think it's natural to, um, to have those feelings, and, and, and in some cases, those feelings can be isolating. And so to, to be able to speak to others who um, can in some way relate to those experiences, I, I think that can be profoundly helpful. Um, you know, brainstorming ways to cope and, and just simply naming that uncertainty and just having the space to discuss it, I think that can be, be very, very helpful. Dr. Nassipal, do you want to add anything as well? Yeah, I think we sometimes underestimate the importance of support groups, so I'll just share a quick anecdote. So I have a patient who's a younger female, has four kids, is working full-time, and everyone close to her knew she had cancer, but at one point one of her kids questioned and said she must have fake cancer because they didn't see a change in her physical appearance because she wasn't undergoing therapy that would cause hair loss. She wasn't undergoing therapy that I would expect to dramatically change her quality of life. And so I think sometimes the flip side of that coin is knowing that you have a cancer and you're going to live with it a very long time, and it may be a different experience than someone who's undergoing 
treatment for stage 4 solid tumor, it's hard sometimes for their extended family members to recognize how to support patients. And so being around others who have gone through similar experiences, maybe at a different time point in their life, can share some advice on how to share this information with those around them that are important and also how to cope with a lifelong illness. That's very interesting. That's true. That's people, it's, it isn't visible to anyone. It's people coping. They go to their appointments. And I think, as Dr. Martin said, it's, it could be over different periods of time, um, over their whole lifetime. It could be that they're being followed for, for something that may actually remain, you know, uh, really need to be followed. But does um, that come up in the group as well? How people feel about that? It does. It absolutely does. Um, I, I, you know, loved ones, um, well-meaning loved ones, you know, do want to offer support, of course, but it's true over time, um, you know, it can be difficult to know how to offer that support. And for people who are perhaps more secretly going through their own sets of questions and concerns and uncertainties, um, you know, can be really very much an invisible uh, experience. And, um and it's important to access other folks who, who get that and then provide some insight and, and some understanding. And also, I just want to add to this, and Dr. Martin, if you want to come on this, there is the kind of normalcy of them seeing a physician over time who knows you, um, who's really uh, kind of that reassuring person who sort of thinks are going, well, we'll see you again in X number of times. Is that also something that you experience with the people that you're seeing over as many years, um, just that they touch base with you? Um, it's an important visit for them, but it's a, a consistent, a lot of people do not have a consistent position in their, in their healthcare team. Um, so. Yeah, I think those are all great points. I mean, some of that is maybe selfish on my behalf, but, you know, I, over time I get pretty attached to people and it's nice to see people back, uh, you know, year after year. So, the, you know, I, suppose that's programming my own bias as much as it is good advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is something good about having someone that is seeing just there for you, just for you, see how you're doing, and give you that reassuring nod that you can then come back at, at, at this particular point in time. I think that's just built that in as well. So all these different points, and each one of them have different relevance to each person on the call. Now, we have another question from one of our online participants, um, and this one is for Dr. Martin to start. How do you know if transformation is occurring and anything that can be done to prevent it from happening? And the person is asking about diet change. Is there anything that they can do to prevent tr- transformation from happening? Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. Uh, Dr. Nathical may have some ideas there as well. I think... Um, it's unclear whether anything we do can necessarily uh, reduce the risk of transformation. There was some uh, data that suggested that um, rituximab might either reduce the risk or, or delay onset of uh, histological transformation. Um, I think that might be true. Uh, it's probably not true that earlier or later uh, initiation of therapy has any impact on transformation. At, at this point, I think it's something that we just have to be aware of. Fortunately, it's a very rare event, and uh, it's probably, it would probably be inappropriate, for example, to intervene in everybody to prevent something that's 
ultimately pretty uh, uncommon. We um, can be alerted to transformation in the presence of certain symptoms, like sweats, fevers, uh, unexpected weight loss, if that's significant. Uh, pet imaging can sometimes uh, highlight areas or lymph nodes that might be suggestive of transformation. Ultimately, we really only know for sure that transformation has happened if there's a biopsy that shows that um, there's a more aggressive lymphoma that's present. Uh, diet, you know, the, the short answer is the healthier people are, the easier my job is. Um, but there's a much longer answer um, that probably is it's too long to get into in, in this sort of forum. You know, with questions related to certain supplements or uh, sugar, my impression is that if those things have an impact, it's probably relatively minor. Um, but there may be something there, and I think clinical trials and observational trials need to be done to do that to to look into that. If anything, I think that probably there is decent data for exercise, aerobic exercise specifically, whether that's uh, effective just because it makes people healthier overall or whether it has a lymphoma-specific effect, I think is unclear, but it, I think it is beneficial. And it also has some emotional benefit, too. Excellent. Dr. Nassipal, do you want to add anything? I think you covered that exactly. Okay. Um, I, I do mention exercise to my patients, and as, as Dr. Martin mentioned, mostly because I think it has many other health benefits. And fatigue is probably the thing we deal with most in our clinic, meaning across patients that are untreated and we're monitoring for signs of recurrence or even those who've had treatment and have treatment-related fatigue. And I am actually a big fan. I think exercise helps with that more than anything, though it's hard sometimes to wrap your brain around the idea of exercising when you have no energy. But I, I think there are a lot of benefits outside of just reducing the risk for poor outcome. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's absolutely true that it's helpful for fatigue and my mother is a, a PhD nurse who uh, has made a career of studying fatigue in cancer patients has uh, impressed that upon me multiple times and so I have to uh, acknowledge my mother <laughs> and that <laughs> might impact Loretta makes a great point though uh, on fatigue that's very helpful and I think that's, that's terrific and I think there's another question from one of our phone participants as well. Our next question is from Edmund E. Your line is now open. Uh, yes, I'm a 18-year uh, survivor of uh, follicular lymphoma. Um, I understand from the um, medical center where I get my treatment that there is now genetic testing being done to try to predict who will benefit from different treatment options. And I'm wondering if um, if you either the two doctors would comment on that. Yes, it is absolutely true that we can profile tumors and know more about the biology. I think we're we're a little bit disappointed is most of the time that doesn't result in a magic bullet. I mean it doesn't tell me exactly which drug is going to work best. There are some exceptions to that, and probably the best example right now is the tazimetastat, which is an EZH2 inhibitor that seems to work best for patients have, who have an EZH2 mutation. So I do think that it's helpful, and as we develop for a better understanding about the biology of the tumor and more drugs are available, it might be more applicable to many patients. But at this time, it's 
still um, confined mostly to research and, and opportunity for us to learn more about it. Dr. Martin, do you want to add? Um, no, I think Dr. Nascapol is right on. Okay. And another telephone question? Our next question is from Patty D. Your line is now open. Yes, uh, you did mention that you uh, observed uh, patients getting a second cancer. I'm a 13-year survivor. I uh, did not have a complete remission, but close, and that has remained stable these 13 years. But in 2016, was diagnosed with a second cancer. Does that, does having follicular lymphoma, you mentioned that it may make you more vulnerable for a second cancer. I think that was Dr. Uh, Nashville mentioned that. Does in turn, uh, does the treatment and for a second cancer make you more vulnerable for the return of the follicular lymphoma? Well, thank you for those questions. And Dr. Nassipal, did you address this in general way, of course? Yeah, so the person who's described this best is Lindsay Morton, who's an epidemiologist at the NIH who has a focus in lymphoma. And so she's done population studies and has shown that patients with follicular and CLL have a higher risk of second cancers in comparison to the general population. We used to think that that was strictly related to our treatment, such as chemotherapy or radiation that put raised patients at risk for developing second cancers. But we know even in the absence of treatment, that risk is slightly higher than the average person or population. So I do think that there are certain chemos and treatments that we know or have an idea of what the risk for second treatment-related cancers are, such as myelodysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia. But there are probably also patients who develop solid tumors such as breast, lung, pancreas, et cetera, um, that are independent of the treatment that they had and probably reflect more the immune system's um, problem with detecting cancer cells as they arise, something we call immune surveillance. So I think it's twofold. One, treatment that we give will put patients at risk for lymphoma, or sorry, for second cancers. Having lymphoma puts you at risk for developing second cancers. The treatment and whether or not that will impact the outcomes for patients with lymphoma, we probably don't have enough information surrounding that to really give you a great answer. But in general, I try to avoid any sort of therapy that will lead to chronic immune suppression for our patients because I do think that that will increase their risk for either second lymphoma showing up or recurrence of their known lymphoma. But I can't be more specific than that. Thank you. And we have one last question, which will be our very last question. And uh, um, Ayala. Our uh, last question is from Carol H. Your line is now open. And uh, um, Ayala. Our uh, last question is from Carol H. Your line is now open. And uh, um, Ayala. Our uh, last question is from. Okay. And I'm currently showing up for the questions. Okay. All right. So. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. It's, it's been an amazing program today, um, and I have to thank you all for just being so incredible. Um, I also, and you can't hear us applauding, but we are applauding all of you, and I also want to thank all the participants who really asked such great questions, both on the telephone and we had some unarmed questions as well. Um, and of course, um, 
I, first of all, I said to all of you that if we didn't get to all of your questions, I would want to give you resources to get your questions answered. So let me do that right up front. Um, so I know there are many more questions in queue that we didn't get to. Um, so I want to actually be sure that you all have um, resources to access. So for any further medical questions about follicular lymphoma or any type of lymphoma or any type of cancer, I also often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute. They have a number at 1-800-422-6237, and I should say that you're all going to get this information also in the evaluation form that you'll be receiving at the end of the program. Um, and they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and the website actually um, is tricky because it um, has a live chat feature, so that's good for people in the U.S. and people internationally as well, where you can post your question, and they will get you answers to your question. But in addition to that, I don't want to... Um, sidestep your healthcare team. Obviously, they know you best, so they are actually a terrific resource to ask your questions to, but I think some of you like to feel more informed, and also uh, sometimes getting this information helps you to feel you can ask more informed questions, just like today's program. Those of you who even you know, asked questions, who got answers to your questions, or take them back to your treating healthcare team and see how they apply to you. That's really important. Um, and then there are many other resources, and we'll be sending you all that with the evaluation form that participate on today's program, all of whom, the lymphoma organizations that I mentioned, they all have, of course, numbers that you can call to get information and have wonderful booklets and materials. And if you would like to actually access cancer care services and contact one of our oncology social workers, then you would simply call cancer care or, or post your question on our website, and one of our oncology social workers would be in touch with you. Um, and, um, and if you want to join an online support group or get any help with um, practical or financial assistance or um, counseling services or join the support group, definitely contact Cancer Care. Um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with follicular lymphoma or in coping with, with, uh, with cancer in general. I want you to know that you're now have this whole support network around you, both your healthcare team and all these resources that are out there to assist you. Um, and um, please do take advantage of them um, and do uh, contact um, all of us. I also want to tell all of you that we do have a program coming up in June on cancer survivorship. And so with um, many of your questions, many of you are living a long time with your cancer and to some extent and the definition of survivorship actually is point of diagnosis, but many of you are actually for many, many years. And so that program is on June 19th, it's a Tuesday, and we'll be getting information about that as well. So again, I want to, want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.